All right. Have a seat, if you would. Turn to Ecclesiastes as you're sitting down. Well, good morning once again. And just another plug for uh, Sandy's talk that she's going to do August 11th and 12th. For those of you who don't know, she's a world-renowned Old Testament scholar. And she's giving us that uh, evening and and morning on that Friday, Saturday to unpack a lesser-known part of Judges for us. And last time we had her do this uh, on the book of Isaiah, did a Friday, Saturday. It just went to rave reviews. So you're going to want to be there for that. Well, I'm standing here and realizing I haven't been up in the pulpit. Is this a pulpit? Music stand, whatever, for, uh, for five weeks now. And it has occurred to me that uh, uh, the last four weeks, Benji preached one of those. And we had uh, Joanne and Mandy and Ken preach. And I've had no one say, man, Mike, we've missed you so much the last month. In fact, it was like, you need to get those people preaching more. Like, go on vacation or something. And so... I'm going to be gone for the next couple months, and uh, no, no. I'm glad to be back, and I'm glad to get back into Ecclesiastes chapter 9 and 10. Hope you're there. Um, I have been hearing a little bit of just, this is a less familiar book. Um, we're going to be in Colossians in the fall, and Colossians is a book that's kind of easy to trace week to week. Paul lays out just kind of an orderly progression of thought, but uh, I've been hearing a little bit. Ecclesiastes is a little hard to get your mind around, so I want to back up, and before we just dive into our little section of Ecclesiastes this week, to think more broadly again about what this book is that we've been studying together. Uh, the first week that we were in Ecclesiastes, Benji had us turn to the table of contents, And uh, it occurred to me that uh, if Jesus and his disciples had turned to their table of contents, it would have looked different than than ours. The Hebrew Bible is arranged, the Old Testament's arranged a little differently. And so if you can see this, the... uh, the, the first five books are the same. The law, or the book of Moses, is the same, Genesis through Deuteronomy. The second major section of their text is the prophets, and that includes uh, Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and Kings, which uh, includes some of the stories of prophets like Samuel and uh, Elijah and Elisha and so forth. Um, and then lastly is the writings, uh, some uh, started by the Psalter, and this is where Ecclesiastes fits in. But in our Bible, I don't know who decided this or when, but the Christians rearranged the Old Testament. And so we still have uh, the law first, same as the Hebrew scriptures. The, the prophets end up, um, but some of what was part of the prophetic books in the Hebrew scripture and the writings have been divided into two sections. And so in our Bibles, you'll find all the historical narrative stuff together, Joshua through Esther, and that's basically chronologically through the story of the people of Israel. And then uh, this third section is wisdom literature. And that's where Ecclesiastes fits in for us. Now, wisdom literature, what is it? Well, it's, uh, it's a few different things, actually. As you've probably recognized by now, uh, some wisdom literature is, takes the form of like just practical advice how to do the right thing at the right time. So we might uh, look at something like Proverbs 27, verse 2. It says, Let another praise you and not your own mouth, a stranger, 
not your own lips. In other words, life goes better when you don't go around bragging about yourself. Let somebody else uh, do the complimenting there. But other parts of wisdom literature recognizes that life isn't as simple as just do this at the right time and things will go well. Life can be complicated and messy. And, and so the book of Job, certainly, and also Ecclesiastes kind of fits into this second category oftentimes, acknowledging the complexity of life. Eugene Peterson wrote a, a book called Five Smooth Stones, and he talks about uh, wisdom literature. I want to just read you a little bit because I think it's instructive as we try to get our heads around what is this book that we're reading. He says this, the book of Job does not reject wisdom. It is, in fact, written from within the wisdom movement. What it rejects is wisdom reduced to bromides, to wisdom merchandised as success stories, like easy uh, solutions. By the 4th century, the task needed doing again. Wisdom had grown stale and become commonplace, but the historical setting was now very different. The problem was not now bewilderment caused by suffering that Job was addressing, but complacency induced by prosperity. Kohelet, uh, the author of Ecclesiastes, with a wholly different style, did for his generation what Job did for his. In the fourth century, the faith of Israel had become flat and platitudinous. The, the majestic mountain of Revelation, Sinai, had been eroded into a little hill. The, the thundering commands of God had been muted and recomposed into soothing background music. The soul-stirring encounters between a sinful man and a holy God had been sentimentalized into soap opera melodrama. Now, there was plenty of wisdom around, and it was wisdom, but it was wisdom in the wrong place. Bits and pieces of God's revelation taken out of their original and awesome settings and arranged like easy answers and convenient miracles. Brilliant, cadenced poetry and thunderous prose had been condensed into Reader's Digest reprints ready to be handed out for conversation pieces. The environment was cluttered with artifacts of small religious talk. How refreshing and how important then to have the modest wisdom of Ecclesiastes introduced into the scene. For Ecclesiastes is wisdom that knows its place. Besides being wise, Kohelet went about his work as a teacher and scribe, sure of the importance of his work, but also sure of its limitations. So the message of Ecclesiastes is is written to those of us in a complex world trying to figure out what it looks like to follow to follow God. Now the part of scripture that we're going to look at today is also complicated a little bit because it, it feels like, in my opinion anyway, Ecclesiastes nine and ten is composed of things that Kohelet wanted to say, but wasn't sure where to fit in. So he just kind of dumped them all in, in, uh, you know, those two chapters, kind of like we would do in a junk drawer in our kitchen or, you know, put things in our garage that don't quite fit anywhere else. Um, so, but the broad category I'd say of what we're going to look at today is folly and wisdom in particular. I think we'll see this over and over again, that wisdom has its limitations but foolishness is no joke. Wisdom has its limitations and foolishness is no joke. Now we're going to stay seated through uh, our reading and just take it kind of verse by verse. Are you there in Ecclesiastes 9? Let's, let's just jump in and we'll read a few verses and unpack it and then keep moving along. Uh, 
So in chapter 9, verse 11, Kohelet, again, talking, he's going to use oftentimes what he sees under the sun. And that is a perspective that's not necessarily taking God into account, but just saying, in my normal life, what I'm seeing. So he says, again, I saw that under the sun, the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge. But time and chance happen to them all. For man does not know his time. Like fish that are taken in an evil net and like birds that are caught in a snare, so the children of man are snared at an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. And what's he saying here? Again, he's speaking to the limits of of wisdom. Wisdom is, is good, but he says, you know, ill fortune happens to people, whether they're wise, rich, strong, intelligent, or whatnot. There's no protection against time and chance. I was reminded of uh, our, our trip recently. You're going to hear more about Dan sitting down here and Rob Knight and Lara and I went to the Yukon. And on part of our trip, Dan taught us how to play cribbage. Any cribbage players out there? Yeah, a few of you guys. Uh, and I never played cribbage. I think he taught me just so he could beat me again and again and again. But uh, you, you, it's, it's, a, it's a game that involves both strategy and chance. And so you're dealt, I think, six cards, right? And you have to decide which two to toss to, for the other person. And so every time after I'd lose, I'd turn to Dan and say, hey, these were the cards I was dealt. Uh, did I make the right play? Did I toss the right cards? And most of the time he'd say, no, you, you should have tossed these cards instead. And sometimes he'd say, you know, that's exactly what I would have done. You, you did the wise thing, but you still lost. <laughs> so it's like, you know, it doesn't, just because you do the right thing doesn't necessarily guarantee you of success. That's what verses 11 and 12 are saying. Sometimes you experience getting caught in the net, caught in the snare, and it has nothing to do with you or your skill or your wisdom. Now, look, at, he keeps going. He says, verse 13, I have also seen this example of wisdom under the sun, and it seemed great to me. And then he tells a little story. There was a little city with just a few men in it, and a great king came against it and besieged it, building great siege works against the city. But there was found in that city a poor wise man, and he, by his wisdom, delivered the city. Ta-da, great story, right? And yet... No one remembered that poor man. But I say that wisdom is better than might, though the poor man's wisdom is despised and his words are not heard. So the story, right? He, this poor little man is able to defeat this huge king and, and war party that's come against his city. But when the war's over, what do they do? Do they declare him to be mayor of the city? No. Do they build a statue in his honor? No. Do they give him, you know, a key to this? No, none of that. Sometimes the author of uh, Ecclesiastes wants us to know uh, wisdom is despised. It goes unappreciated and unrewarded. In other words, wisdom has its limits, but foolishness is no joke. Now let's keep going. Verse 17, the words of the wise heard in quiet are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. And wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. Now look at chapter 10, verse 1. He gives us a little proverb to uh, state again in, in more flowery language what he's just said. Dead flies make the perfumer's ointment give off a stench. <laughs> and so a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. 
So he's saying in the same way that just a little sin or a little foolishness can mess up what is wise and good. So something great like a perfumer's oil that's taken so much time to, to uh, get together and make a pleasant smell. Just a couple little dead flies can ruin the whole thing and turn it into something foul um, smelling. Now, have you heard the, uh, the saying, uh, it can take a lifetime to build a reputation, but just a moment to ruin it. It's true. You can take your whole lifetime building up a good reputation, but just a moment of foolishness and sin can ruin the whole thing. That's his point here. So, our point and what we're saying today, can you say it with me? Wisdom has its limitations, but foolishness is no joke. All right, let's keep moving along. Verse 2. He says, A wise man's heart inclines him to the right, but a fool's heart to the left. Even when the fool walks on the road, he lacks sense. And he says to everyone that he is a fool. In other words, the fool's character, his behavior is going to show what's in his mind, in his heart. It's going to be on display for all to see. Now, verse 2, again, a wise man's heart inclines him to the right, a foolish man's heart to the left. This is not about politics, people. I know some of you Republicans are yeah, that's my favorite verse in the Bible. It's not about politics, okay? Um, It's basically saying wise people and foolish people are going to end up going in opposite directions. Now, it does probably connote a little more than that. Where, where are my left-handers in the room? How many left-handers do we have there? You know, left-hander, way to go, guys. I, when I think of the left-handers, I think you guys are capable, intelligent, foxy. And that might have something to do with my fact that I'm married to a left-hander. But, um, <laughs> but different connotations for right and left in the Bible. Sorry, lefties. But the right hand in the Bible is the place of blessing and honor and power. So that is why Christ is seated where? At the right hand of God. It's not like we should picture just to the right, not to the left hand. But no, it's saying that the place of honor and majesty and power, that's where Christ is. So in the left is more suspect. It's like not the place. Do you remember uh, the story, funny story in the Bible where Joseph uh, brings his sons to his elderly father, Jacob, right before he's going to die. And he sets his oldest son, uh, Manasseh, right on his dad's right hand so he could receive the greater blessing and the younger son on the left. But tricky Jacob switches his hands right at the last minute and puts the greater blessing, the right hand, on the younger son. That demonstrates, again, the, the difference between the right and the left hand here. The, the, the person of wisdom goes off to the place of blessing and, and uh, honor to the right. But the fool goes off to the place that's not uh, described as having a blessing. Now, verse 3, look at that again. Even when a fool walks on the road, he's just living his life. He lacks sense, and he says to everyone that he is a fool. It's going to be obvious. I couldn't help but think about this week when I read that verse. Uh, the summer after I graduated from high school, I was 17 years old. I was going to be at Westmont in the fall. I was so excited uh, because I could start going to the college ministry events at my church, even though I'd never been to college. But I was so excited. Be with the big kids now. And uh, so I called my friend and said, well, are you going to go to the college group with me? He said, I can't go. But um, if something's going on afterwards, I should be free. Give me a call. So I went to the pool party. Had a great time. And afterwards, people were, said, we're going to haagen ice cream over on El Camino. And so I called up my friend. I said, hey, everybody's going to ice cream. Do you want to come? 
And he said, yeah, come pick me up. So I was one of the last ones to leave the party. And I had to drive right by the ice cream shop to pass to go get my, my friend and pick him up and bring him back. And I, I thought it'd be kind of a cool thing while I drive by to, to see all these new college students that I just met to uh, honk my horn and wave to them. And so just as I'm driving by, I honk the horn, wave, and I see all these heads look up at me just in time to see me rear-end a Corvette. <laughs> yeah, I know. Saying to everyone that he is a fool, right? It's like, honk, honk, wave, kush. I'm a fool. Thank you very much. Uh, it was embarrassing and expensive, to say the least. That's exactly the point that Kohelet's trying to make. The behavior is putting foolish, uh, the foolishness on display and saying, here I am. Now, before you judge me too much, it, wisdom in the Bible and foolishness in the Bible, are, it's not about IQ. It's not about SAT scores or how good you are at crossword puzzles. Wisdom in the scriptures is an ethical concept, not an intellectual one. It's about living in the knowledge that God is God and that you are not. It's about living your life from from that conviction uh, that God is in control, that he is sovereign, that we belong to him and not living from our own impulses and desires. So the fool is not necessarily the person who's just stupid. No, the fool is the one who doesn't know their place in God's world and seeks to live according to their own will rather than God's loving authority. And that is a serious thing. And so the point of what we're looking at today, would you say it with me again? Wisdom has its limitations, but foolishness is no joke. No, it's a, it's a serious thing. Now, we're going to keep going, but we're going to skip over verses 5 to 7, and we'll come back with those later. But in verses 8 to 11, Kohelet wants us to see that wisdom may not protect us from every unfortunate event, but neglecting wisdom can still lead to exhausting and painful consequences. Look at verses 8 and 9. He says, He who digs a pit will fall into it, and a serpent will bite him who breaks through a wall. He who quarries stones is hurt by them, and he who splits logs is endangered by them. These are just four accidents that could happen to anybody in daily life, whether you're wise or fool. It doesn't matter. You can be working and something bad can happen to you. But lest we should say, ah, it just all doesn't matter. I'm just going to go ahead and live life how I want. He follows it up with two examples of why it's still important to to seek wisdom and to seek to live wisely. Look at verse 10. It says, If the iron is blunt and one does not sharpen the edge, he must use more strength, but wisdom helps one to succeed. So the picture here is somebody chopping wood with an axe and the blade has become dull. And they think to themselves, that's just going to create more work for me to go sharpen the blade, so I'm just going to do the work with this dull axe. And he ends up wearing himself out. The message is it's, it's wise to, to do the extra work to sharpen the blade. The rest will go easier for you. And look at verse 12. The words of, uh, oh, sorry, verse 11. If the serpent bites before it is charmed, there is no advantage to the charmer. Now, what, what's that about? Well, the point is somebody who has the skill of charming a snake, uh, but doesn't bother to do it at the right time. So Douglas O'Connor 
uh, O'Donnell, uh, one commentator, paraphrases it like this. He says, instead of first charming the snake, the fool just walks up to the dangerous creature as he would a pet rabbit. And the unmesmerized serpent is not amused and strikes the stupid man. <laughs> it's like, you've got to do things in the right order. Now, the message of this whole section, verses 8 to 11, is you can't eliminate risk in life. Certain things are going to happen, but acting in wisdom can save you a lot of pain and grief in the long run. So again, wisdom has its limitations, but foolishness is no joke. Now, there's two more sections. One is verses 12 to 15. And in this section, uh, we'll see one of the favorite topics of wisdom literature, and that is the tongue. If you read through Proverbs, uh, he'll talk about the tongue and the mouth and the lips all the time. And that's because, as I'm sure you've recognized in your own life, the power of your words for good or for ill is massive. So he says in verse 12, kind of a summary statement. Look at it. The words of a wise man's mouth win him favor, but the lips of a fool consume him. Watch what you say. It's vitally important. And then he goes on to elaborate. The beginning of the words of his mouth is foolishness, and in the end, the end of his talk is evil madness. A fool multiplies his words, though no man knows what it is to be, and who can tell him what will come after him? The toil, maybe this is the the work of just talking, talking, talking of a fool, wearies him, for he does not know the way to the city. What does that mean? Well, I think Ian Pravon is right. He's a scholar that said what what he's saying here is the ordinary fool is, is characterized in our passage fundamentally as someone who's lost, doesn't know where they are, but they're verbose. They just keep talking. He talks a good game, but he does not know where the goal line is. The number of his words are in inverse proportion to his understanding. (laughs) Anybody ever know somebody like that? Yeah, or like how Plato put it. Wise men speak because they have something to say. Fools because they have to say something. (laughs) I'm just going to say something and keep going until I figure out what I'm saying. Uh, Most of us probably do not need me to give another illustration of how... uh, a person can be harmed by their foolish speech. So I won't. I've got plenty of my own stories, as you might imagine. But the point here is what we've seen and experienced too many times is that foolish speech is no joke to others or to oneself. Now, the final section that I want to look at is to back up to verse 5 and 6 and then look at the, the remaining stuff as well. Look at verse 5. Kohelet says, There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, as it were an error proceeding from the ruler. Folly is set in many high places, and the rich sit in a low place. And I've seen slaves on horses and princes walking around the ground like slaves. What he's saying is he's appalled by this topsy-turvy, upside-down world that we live in. And he said, it's especially grievous when foolishness resides in people of power. And when the people who are wise are are in positions of uh, inferiority that, that causes bad, uh, these decisions that fo- foolish, powerful people make can cause tons of harm. Now look down to verse 16. He continues on the same thread of foolishness in powerful uh, places. 16 he says, Woe to you, O land, when your king is a child and your princes feast in the morning. But happier you, O land, when your king is the son of nobility, and your princes feast at the proper time for strength and not for drunkenness. 
And then he, in the next two verses, he gives us a picture again of foolishness from powerful people. He says, through sloth, the, ra- the roof sinks in and through indolence, laziness, the house leaks. So when, when the person in charge isn't doing their job, all kinds of things start going wrong. Just last Sunday, I was called over to the, the CE building, the education wing over there. And Claire said, can, can you help out this? We've got a leak coming in. And the roof, the house was leaking. <laughs> there was a, right in the middle of one of the, the education rooms, there was not just a drip, drip, drip. It was like a pretty steady stream of water. I'm thinking... I don't know if the bathroom pipe just burst overhead or what's going on. Uh, I don't know where to shut this stuff off. Fortunately, James Nguyen came in and saved the day. <laughs> he, he figured it out that what had happened was we had just installed air conditioning units over there. And whoever, uh, whatever genius installed that air conditioning unit, there's a little drip line that goes out of it that's supposed to, you know, the water's supposed to go somewhere. And they just ended it right in the middle of the room, (laughs) right in the ceiling. And so it was just pouring down from the ceiling and James fixed it. Thanks goodness. Yeah. If you want me uh, to fix anything, you've got the wrong guy. But, uh, this is the point that, that somebody is not doing their job. Who's in charge. They're a foolish person. And it's, it's got consequences. Verse 19, I I take as just uh, like a quotation from the foolish king. Bread is made for laughter. Wine gladdens everything. Money answers everything. This is great. And they're they're lost. Now, what if you find yourself to be living under a fool? Verse 20, the last verse, gives us some good advice. Even in your thoughts, do not curse the king. Nor in your bedroom curse the rich, for a bird of the air will carry your voice, or some winged creature will tell the matter. In other words, the walls have ears. So if you find yourself working for a foolish boss, or living in a land with foolish politicians, or maybe even in a church with a foolish pastor, watch your words. Uh, Don't revert to slander. So, will you say it with me one more time? The point of this all is... Wisdom has its limitations, but foolishness is no joke. All right, end a Bible study together. What are we to take away from this? You and I, we live in a, in a world that is big on information and short on wisdom. Ours is a time that not only recognizes the limitations of wisdom, but we are suspicious of anything that is truly wisdom. If we haven't personally tested it, And approved it. Ours is a world in which no one ever asks to think whether 24-hour news channels are a good thing. A world in which we have technology to do what is previously unimaginable, but we're not even sure if that those things are worth doing or not. Ian Pravon again, I think, hits the nail on the head. Whoops, I don't have a slide for this one, but he says the truth is that we have never known so much and understood so little. I think he's right. So how are we to navigate such a world? If we see that foolishness is not funny and we want to avoid disasters that come by folly, where can we find a solid place to put our feet? The answer that scripture gives us is not just don't be dumb. I mean, that's good advice to live by. (laughs) Don't be dumb. But all of scripture points us to Jesus. 
Do you remember when Jesus was, uh, the, right after Easter Sunday, he had res- risen from the dead. He's on the road to Emmaus. And he's, he's unpacking the scriptures to these two traveling companions. And he says to them that Moses, that's the, the law, that first part of the Hebrew scriptures, and the prophets, that second part, and the Psalms, which stand for all the rest of the writings, all are about me. In other words, the answer to our problem of living in a world full of foolishness and trying to figure out where do we put our feet is found in Jesus. Jesus said, everyone then who hears my words and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. Remember, the rains fell, floods came up, the winds blew and beat on that house and it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish person who built his house on sand and the rains came down and the floods came up and the winds beat upon that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. In other words, he's agreeing with Ecclesiastes. Foolishness is no joke. But Jesus invites us to come and to be his disciples, to learn from him. Now, the problem for us is when we hear Jesus' words, it doesn't always sound like wisdom, does it? He said things like, to become a leader, you must be a servant. If you want to save your life, you must lose it. Don't hate your enemy, love your enemy. To be rich, give your wealth away. And we think that doesn't make sense. But it wasn't just his words, was it? It was his very life. Kohelet said, woe to the land whose king is a child. And is it any wonder then that most people did not see that Jesus, who came into this world as a child, was in fact its rightful king. Kohelet bemoaned the upside-down world in which princes walk on the ground like slaves. And is it any wonder that most people cannot recognize the prince of life who spent his life walking around on the ground, talking to people and serving, serving everyone? So Paul... In 1 Corinthians, he summarizes the life of Christ and the gospel itself in these words. He says, Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews, folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, whoever you are, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Friends, this is our hope. Not just a message of don't be dumb, but... Become a disciple of Jesus. Build your life on him, on his instructions. In all the uncertainties of life, find your security and your stability in a life devoted to him. Friends, behold, the table of Christ, these elements, this bread, this cup, remind us of the wisdom of God, a crucified Savior who saves us from the self-destructiveness of our own foolishness.
Have you been foolish this week? Do you need a savior? This table is for you. This table is for any who recognize the limits of their own wisdom. And instead of, instead of relying on Jesus, the wisdom of God. I want to invite you to take a moment of silence before you come to the table and do some business with the Lord. Confess your need for God's wisdom. Confess ways that you have relied on your own wisdom, foolishness, instead of going to him. And, and thank God for the, the wisdom of his plan to send Jesus to bear the consequences for our foolishness and folly. And then I want to invite you to come, come to the table with gratitude that God is for us and not against us. God's not standing out there thinking, oh, you fool. I don't want anything to do with you. No, that's why he sent Jesus, because he loves people like you and I. And he's provided a way uh, to come to himself. Prayer teams will be available on the right and left as they always are. But let's worship this great and wise Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.